0: Amen. All right, we're starting a new series this morning, um, and and what we're we're calling it True Flourishing is, and right the idea of flourishing Grace Church. I've just prayed about it. We talk about it all the time. We we long to see men and women led into flourishing relationships with Jesus. And the question is, was what does what that actually look like? What does that actually mean? How, how do we know if we have a flourishing relationship with Jesus? And so we've identified seven different things, that we, key factors that we believe, man, if, if this is true of your life, you will have a flourishing relationship with Jesus. And those, those seven things are, are this, putting Jesus first at all costs, saying Jesus is going to be preeminent in my life no, no matter what comes. Come what may, he'll be... Uh, preeminent my life, living a prayer-saturated life, lives where we are regularly often engaging in prayer uh, with our Savior, Um, loving people no matter what. When we become a people, right, moved by the gospel of Jesus, when we become a people who um, no longer fight for our own longings and our own desires in this world, but rather give that away. And we love our neighbors and we love our communities and we we, we seek the flourishing of our our friends and our coworkers. Um, Flourishing begins to take place in our lives. We've seen it happen again and again and again and again. The more we give love, the more we receive that and the more joy we find. Uh, seeking lives of radical obedience to, to Jesus, right? Where, where we are not, not just kind of giving lip service and saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but saying, no, I want to model my life after the way that He has taught me and shown me. Um, inviting our friends to experience Jesus. Again, when we, when we engage in the mission of God, when we engage um, in, in helping, leading our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers into flourishing relationships with Jesus. Our lives flourish, and we believe that to be true. We've seen that happen. Giving because he gave to us. Releasing our grasp on the things of this world and saying, I'm not going to pursue empty dreams and empty things, things that don't sustain. I'm going to pursue the one who fulfills all of my hopes, the one true and steadfast hope. That's the one. Um, And then committing to life together, just like this, right? Right? whether it's in a small group community or engaging together um, in, in a big setting like this, getting to know that challenge that I threw out earlier, getting to know other people and saying, I need help in order to flourish. I, I need other people in my life to do that. We believe that to be true. And so this morning, what we're going to do over the next seven weeks is we're going to unpack different characters of the Bible um, that exemplify one of those seven things. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the first one, putting Jesus first at all costs, And the character that we're going to unpack this morning is uh, the Apostle Paul, right? Um, Paul, many of you probably know that Paul Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. You literally, you cannot talk about flourishing. You cannot talk about putting Jesus first without talking about Paul. Uh, Paul, his original name, his birth name was Saul. Saul was born in a city called Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey, around 6 AD. He was born um, a Roman citizen. Uh, to Jewish parents. Okay? So he was born a, Ro- a Roman citizen and a Jew. Now, this is strange. This is not common. It's not common for Jews to be Roman citizens. It's kind of an anomaly, a special thing, and we don't know exactly how that happened, but at some point in time, Paul's parents, before his birth, were granted Roman citizenship. They, they were given this-, this gift of being a Roman citizen. And so Paul is born into this Jewish family, and and they were Roman citizens. And so he has this unbelievable, actually amazing kind of gift of a childhood. Paul would have grown up pretty privileged. He would have, have, um, in that time, in that day, the Jewish communities from city to city to city were tight-knit. Uh, they, they went to the same synagogue together. They lived in the same neighborhoods together. So, Paul kind of grows up with all of his little homeboys in Tarsus, and Paul has a distinct advantage over everybody else. All of his friends and all of his neighbors, um, they don't have what Paul has. Paul is afforded a lot of special rights because of his Roman citizenship. And so, Saul grows up in Tarsus as a Roman citizen and a Jew. He, is, he goes to, because of this, he goes to some of the best schools. He becomes a master in the Jewish law. He actually becomes a Pharisee. A Pharisee, um, sometimes we put a, a negative connotation around the idea of Pharisee. But for Saul, for Saul um, this would have been a very positive thing. The idea of living in a Jewish community and being a Pharisee, being an expert in the law, being this special sect where you're called out, you're not amongst the, the regular folks, you, you are special, you, you have this ability um, to, to kind of walk around and say, look, you, you have questions, ask me, I, I am the expert in, within the Jewish law. And so Paul has, um, not only is he a Roman citizen, so he can kind of flaunt that a little bit, but he is... Kind of the leading expert in his community. And so he is um, kind of as a young man growing up in his late teens, early 20s, he's got it going on. He's got it going on. And in his early 20s, uh, there is some rumblings that begin to happen in a place called Judea in Galilee, this region by the sea near Jerusalem. There's, there's this rumbling going on, and, and every Jew uh, within, within a long distance within the Roman kingdom would have heard about these rumblings. There, there's someone co- that shows up on the scene, and he's going around talking about this new way. There's, there's a new way. We've discovered a new way. You have to follow this new way. This, this one um, begins this, this movement in this area, and hundreds of people are showing up to hear him speak. Thousands of people begin to show up to hear him speak. They say he's doing miracles. Crazy things are happening. He says that he claims that he is the son of God. Paul, living in Tarsus, which was a decent amount away, for sure would have heard about this. This was big news in this day. Eventually, in Paul's mid to late 20s, this one, Jesus, is crucified in Jerusalem. He's put to death by the Romans at the encouragement of the Jewish leaders Because the Jews and the Romans did not like this movement that was being built, this new way that was being found, this this way of love, this way of kindness, this way of grace. That's not, we don't like that. So they put him to death. But that doesn't stop the movement. The movement actually begins to grow, and the movement begins to flourish. The Holy Spirit shows up on the scene, and and, and the reality is is that after his death, after after the death of Jesus, hundreds of people see him walking around. And that kind of sparked some things, all right? That's, that's kind of, that would, that's a normal thing to happen. If you see somebody crucified and then you, then you have dinner with him, um, it kind of moves some things. And those, things, those people begin to b- invite friends and those people see Jesus and they've invite friends and they see Jesus. And in the 40 days after his death, literally over 500 people saw him living and breathing. Some of these same people saw him die on the cross, and then the Holy Spirit shows up on the scene, and, the, and this, these hundreds turn into thousands in a day, in an instant. His disciples are filled with this boldness, and they begin to preach and proclaim this new way of love and grace and kindness, um, this, this new way of needing to have the mercy of God in your life in, in order to draw near to him. And this does not sit well with the Jewish leaders or the Romans. The Romans don't want anybody rising to power. They don't want any group growing too large. And so they hire some people to take care of the situation. One of the people that they hire, the one people that they bring in, is a guy named Saul. Saul shows up on the scene, this this expert in the Jewish law of Pharisee, and a Roman citizen. So he has this ability to walk in both worlds. Saul, Saul is so zealous about his faith, about his Jewish faith that he goes around from city to city, beginning in Jerusalem, persecuting these, new, this new movement, these people who, who gather in homes. They call these gatherings, the ecclesia," the, the church begins to form. And so Paul goes from town to town, from city to city, from home to home, pulling them out, bringing them to Jerusalem where they will be killed for this new faith that Jesus has proclaimed to them. One of the most famous moments in Paul's life, and many of you probably know this, it's been preached on so many times and talked about so much. Uh, Paul is, Saul is on his way to a city called Damascus to do this. He's been ordered to go to Damascus, find followers of the way, Bring them to Jerusalem where they will be tried and executed. Saul's on his way to Damascus, and this bright light shows up in the middle of the road. This blinding light, Paul, Saul falls flat on his face. He's got people there with him. They see this light, and they can't stare at it. They can't look at it, and the light speaks. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, flat on his face, says, who are you, Lord? And the light says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Saul lays there flat on his face, and Jesus says, I want you to go to Damascus and wait there. And the light disappears. Paul stands up to get ready to go to Damascus, and he realizes he can't see. He's he's literally gone blind from the glory of Jesus. He cannot see to get to Damascus. So his friends who are with him have to help him to Damascus. For three days, he sits in Damascus. Jesus shows up to one of his disciples in Damascus and he says, I I want you to go and I want you to go find Saul. And the disciple there says, no, I don't think so. I know who Saul is. I want nothing to do with that. I don't want to be engaged. I don't want to, I I, I don't want, uh, he's gonna gonna kill me. He's gonna bring me to Jerusalem. They're gonna kill me there. I, I don't want to do that. And Jesus says, I have plans for him. Go find him. And so that disciple goes and lays hands on Saul and restores Saul's sight. The scale, it says that his scales fall from his eyes and he can see. And in that moment, sets the course for the rest of Saul's life. His name is changed to Paul. And Paul, from that moment on, uh, lives a radically different life, Right? Clearly, he's not going to go on persecuting anybody anymore. If a gigantic light that talks to you shows up, um, you're probably going to tell you to stop doing something. You're probably going to listen to that. Um, And he does. He stops the persecution of the church. But he doesn't just stop the persecution of the church, he becomes one of the leaders of this church. One of the greatest missionaries the world has ever known, he goes on these missionary journeys and he plants churches from town to town to town, from city to city to city, all over the region, all over the land. In um, what is modern-day Greece and modern-day Turkey, Paul travels all over proclaiming the good news, the gospel of Jesus. But I don't think that this moment, this single moment on the road to Damascus, it gets a lot of credit. We talk about it a lot but I, I don't think it's the moment that produced a life of flourishing for, for, for Paul. It, sure, it certainly set that in motion, but I, I don't think that that singular moment could possibly produce a, a lifetime of flourishing. A, a lot of us, maybe even some of us here today, have had, have had it kind of a moment. There was a time in our life where we had... Um, kind of a relationship with God, or, or maybe you had some sort of spiritual moment in, in your life that kind of woke you up to this reality that there's something more, that there's got to be something more. But that singular moment, moments don't produce a lifetime of flourishing. One singular moment cannot, cannot produce a lifelong of flourishing. It, it cannot. So there's got to be something more. Now, you might say, Josh, no, no, no. Literally, if, if, the, if the glory of Jesus, the Shekinah glory of Jesus shows up in the middle of the road and makes me go blind for three days, that's going to change me. Listen, if he did that, I would follow him too, but he hasn't done that, so there you go. I've heard a lot of people say that stuff like that. If Jesus would show up and if Jesus would, would, would talk to me now, then I would follow him. I actually don't believe that that's true. I, I don't believe it's true. In the same way, when, 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 it, when a young, when a young uh, boy is dumped by his girlfriend and he says, I'll do anything for one more chance. I'll give you whatever you want. I can, I can fix it. I'll be better. I know I messed up here and I messed up there, but I can be better now. And she gives him one more chance. Does he nail it? No, never does, right? In the same way, when 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 you mess up at work and the boss sits you down for the conversation, you say anything. I'll just give me one more chance. Give me one more chance. I'll I'll fix it. I know I mess up here, and I know yeah, I know I mess up back there, and oh right, that time too, I I messed up there, but I can fix it. I can be better. I'll do. I'll work harder. Did they turn it around? No. Because one moment of grace does not produce a life. Does not produce change. It doesn't produce a life of flourishing. Now certainly it can set that in motion, but there's got to be something more. And on top of all of that, on top of all of that, for Paul, he's living this, this life of, of true ease. He's, he's in his mid-20s and he's got it going on. Jesus shows up and Paul's life radically changes. He gives his life to Jesus But it doesn't get better, it gets far worse. He records some of the things that happened to him in 2 Corinthians 11 uh, 24 through 28. Paul says this Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, thirst, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me, of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul, Paul's life, Paul doesn't meet Jesus on the road to Damascus and suddenly everything gets peachy and better. Paul's living a posh, comfortable life. He meets Jesus and everything gets crazy. He starts taking beatings. He starts going hungry. He, starts, uh, he, he writes the majority of the New Testament, yes, and we, we talk about that. He writes the majority of the New Testament from prison, It's not this happy, happy ever after story. There's got to be something more than this singular moment that produces in Paul this lifelong flourishing, this lifelong, I'm going to put Jesus first at all costs, no matter what. When at the end of Paul's life, he died, he was martyred in Rome um, in his uh, late 50s, early 60s. And before that, he was in, in house arrest in Rome. And he wrote a lot of the letters that we have today. He wrote them while he was in house arrest of Rome. He wrote wrote a letter uh, to the church in Colossae. He wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. He wrote a a letter to a friend, Philemon. uh, And he wrote a letter to the church in Philippi. And in that letter to the church at Philippi, he writes something that I believe unpacks and helps us understand um, why Paul could say at the end of his life, It was better with Jesus than it was before I knew Jesus. Here's what he says in the the letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, starting in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, asked the law, a Pharisee, asked his zeal, a persecutor of the church, asked to righteousness under the law, blameless. Here's what Paul said. If you think that you've done enough for God to say, good job, nice work, I've done more. If you think that in some way, shape, or form that you've that you've made it, that you've earned it, that you, that you've built and built and acquired something that's 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 awesome and good, I've done more. Literally, I had everything. I was a Roman citizen, I was a Pharisee. When it came to the law, I was blameless, he says. Blameless. When it came to zeal and passion for my faith, I was literally the one that was persecuting anybody who didn't believe what I believed. Nobody could say that they did more than I did. I did it all. I was blameless. And he goes on and he says this, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, whatever, whatever I'd done, whatever I'd built, whatever I'd acquired through my awesomeness, I counted it. He didn't say that. I added that. I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. In order that, so that, why? So that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, everything that I had built, everything that I had found, I counted all as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth the surpassing worth, surpassing worth of knowing Christ. What Paul is saying in, in a nutshell is that, is that putting Jesus first at all costs it is not an act of discipline where it's like, man, I, I have to give up these things in order to follow Jesus. No, no, no. It's an act of self-fulfillment. It's an act of saying, I actually get more from putting Jesus first at all costs. There's surpassing worth, the worth of putting Jesus first at all costs, of knowing him. It surpasses anything else that I could have ever built. There is a surpassing worth in simply knowing who Jesus is. It transforms Paul's identity. My identity in Christ is far greater than my identity as a Roman citizen, Or a Jew. It transforms um, Paul's calling, um, his life, his self-worth, the value that I have and the mission of God, the mission that Christ has given me is far greater than the mission that I was given by the Romans or the Jews. And on top of all that, the thing that Paul highlights is the righteousness, the surpassing worth of the righteousness that's found in Christ is what blows Paul away. He says, I, I gave my life. I studied the law. I obeyed the law. When it came to the law, I was literally blameless. And the righteousness of Christ is a million times better than my righteousness. Some of us, even here this morning, we love the checkbox. And I know you love the checkbox. It's okay. I, listen, this week I had, a, I had a checkbox a mile long trying to think of all the things that we needed to do in order to get this thing ready. Checkboxes are awesome. But what Paul is literally saying is when it comes to my faith, when it comes to my religion, the checkbox was driving me away from Christ because I thought that I was the one doing it. I thought that my righteousness was good enough. But what I realize now is that my righteousness was, is literally worthless compared to his. And at the, end of, at the end of the day, when I stand before God in all glory, when I stand before God, I will be held to one singular thing, one thing. Am I in Christ? All of the things that I did in my life will be forgotten in that moment. Everything that I've ever built, bought, found, acquired, established, the good and the bad, in that moment will be forgotten. I will not remember one and no one will remember one. The only thing that will be known in that moment is whether or not I am in Christ. The only thing that will be questioned in that moment is whether or not I'm in Christ. And so Paul says, I count it all lost. It's all rubbish compared to knowing him and being found in him. I will pursue that at all cost. This value of righteousness, Paul realizing that everything that he could ever do for himself is small, it's tiny compared to what Jesus has already done for him. We could give our whole lives to trying to find more joy, acquire more things, build greater things, and it would be small and meaningless compared to what Christ has already done for us. This transforms Paul. It changes the way he thinks. It changes the way he acts. This is, the, this is what, what shaped him and molded him when he realized how much Christ has already done for him. Here's what he says in verse 10. We read it once. We'll read it again. It changes Paul. Why? He says it this way. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That by any means possible, that by any means possible, that by any means possible, Jesus first at all cost. I I will place Jesus first in my life at all cost so that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead, that I might be found in him. I, I, I will seek to know him. I will seek to find value in him, to find worth in him, to treasure him, to know his glory, to know his joy, to know um, his ability to sustain. He is is more beautiful than the most amazing sunset, more powerful than the mightiest of mountains, more wise than, than the most brilliant of men, and he loves you more than I can begin to know more than I can begin to say. And the call on each one of us here at Flourishing Grace Church is to put him first at all costs. And when we do, the more we value him, the more we treasure him, the more we put him first at all costs, and the more we find our worth there, the more we as individuals flourish. But the call is not just for us to put him first at all costs. The call is for us to help others put him first at all costs, to help the people sitting around you put him first at all costs. To help our neighbors and our friends and co-workers to see his beauty, to see his value again and again and again, a hundred times, a thousand times over. You need to help me. I need to help you. We need to help each other see the beauty of Christ, to know him in his goodness, to know that the, that the God of the universe put on flesh, put on skin and bone, put on lungs and heart and stepped into time and he walked among us. He bled and died for you and me and exchanged his own righteousness for our unrighteousness. And he nailed my unrighteousness to the cross. He bled for it. He died for it. And he gave me his own. And there is a surpassing worth there. And so I put him first at all costs. Not out of duty or obligation, but because I will get more out of that than I could anything else in my life. He is greater than the applause of men, more beautiful than the most breathtaking sunsets, more powerful than the mightiest of mountains, more loving than you will ever know. Cling to him, know him, be found in him, put him first at all cost, Friends, you will experience flourishing. You put him first at all costs. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I praise you for this time that we have together this morning. And might you be preeminent. Might you be at the head of all that we do forever and ever and ever. It is for your glory, not for ours. It's for your fame, not for ours. It's for your renown, not for ours. Might the applause always be for you. Might the praise always be for you. Might we find the surpassing worth of knowing you? Might we find the surpassing worth that is found in your righteousness? For those that are gathered here this morning that have been chasing and pursuing this righteousness that they think, man, if I just do these things, then then God will love me. Would you break that? Would you fracture that? Would you let them know that when they stand before you, there will be one singular thing that matters? And it's not... It's not what they've done here in this moment. It's what you did 2,000 years ago. Are they found in you? Have they put you first at all cost? Have they wrapped their lives around your life? You are amazing. You are beautiful. You are wonderful. Help us to have a bigger picture of you, a greater worth, a greater value of who you are. I pray these things in your name, in the name of Jesus, amen.